Hello and welcome to P4A's Let's Talk Rare monthly podcast. Every month, we at Partners for Access bring to you some of the most important news developments in the orphan drug and cell gene therapy world and what they mean to you. Hello, everyone. Our guest today represents one of the largest trade associations in Europe that prides itself in being the voice of small to medium-sized health technology companies, Victor Martins, Government Affairs Manager at European Confederation of Pharmaceutical Entrepreneurs, or UCOP. Welcome to the show. So, Victor, UCOP represents, I'm told, over 2,000 innovative companies. You're based in Belgium. Tell us a little bit about it and your role, too. Perfect. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm happy to, to be here today. You know, as you said, my name is Victor Martins. I am the Government Affairs Manager here at UCO, and my role here really is to represent our interest when it comes to ATMPs, cell and gene therapies, and the ongoing review of the European pharmaceutical legislation. We do that in the context of our work representing small and mid-sized pharmaceutical companies, predominantly the innovative companies. I think it's it's those companies that are researching, designing, developing, supplying, and deploying those next generation of therapies all over continents. And we do that both in the framework of supporting engagement at European level, as well as, I think, priding ourselves on a lot of work we do to help companies when it comes to their market access work. And we do that both as ourselves, but also in large part through a number of our partnerships, things like the OD expert group specializes in the orphan therapy field, as well as other partnerships like Transform, which is one of the partnerships in the area of um, cell and gene therapies. We, uh, we work closely with a, in a in multi-stakeholder framework. Thank you for that. Uh, so ATMPs are what's called as the advanced therapy medicinal products, basically medicines that are used for human use that include your gene therapies, cell therapies, tissues, et cetera. What do you think are the main challenges that your members who make these ATMP drugs, they are facing, especially in getting their products approved? So I think that's perhaps a simple answer, a simple question, but with a really complicated mm-hmm. answer. I think when it comes to getting these therapies approved, and to, you know, the, I'll try to summarize this for the sake of brevity, is around a few key pillars or key, few key themes I think one of the challenges that we face is just the inherent uncertainty when it comes to the long-term impacts um, and clinical efficacy of, of a number of these therapies. ATMPs and cell and gene therapies are potentially one-off and are likely to have, if not lifelong, quite long-term impacts. And the question is, how do we demonstrate that to regulators, payers, HTA bodies, without necessarily having to conduct clinical trials that last the lifetime, the lifespan of the patients. So how do we build a system that, that can recognize the, the benefit of these therapies, which moves almost in, in which is almost in contrast to, to what a number of our, our systems are set up for at the moment, looking more at chronic, regular kind of therapies. So I think that's that's one challenge. And yeah, it's, I think there's much, there's a lot behind that as well. But I think that enca- encapsulates part of it is that there's an uncertainty element and there's a question of how we look at that from a long-term perspective. But would you say that this is because, also because 
rare diseases or orphan drugs have very small patient population anyway to test these drugs in clinical trials. So does it add to the whole complexity of the situation? I think it definitely does. I think obviously ATMPs are, you know, the ATMPs we have in the market at the moment are focused on, on rare conditions. ATMPs won't forever be limited just to just the orphan space. We're seeing more and more clinical trials in, in, for lack of a better term, more chronic conditions. But definitely in where we are now, where a lot of these are indicated for rare conditions, that it, the, the size of the population group is incredibly challenging. And even when we move into the non-rare space, that I think will continue to be an issue. Often ATMPs targets really very serious conditions and patient recruitment for clinical trials is going to be inherently challenging, not just because of their size, but also the nature of the technology, the fact that a lot of these patients might be on existing treatments that need chronic uh, applications. How do you, you know, how do you run a clinical trial? Perhaps a, a randomized clinical control trial, and then have a placebo effect if a patient needs to be on a, on a chronic treatment. Mm. How do we make sure that there's the correct infrastructure because a lot of these ATMPs are only able to be applied in specialized institutes? There's a lot of elements at play that complicate the matter. You were talking about the other pillars, three pillars. So we talked about one. What about the other two? The other, the other kind of big challenge that we see, how do we value a therapy that has very limited application, but has that long-term benefit? And how do our HTA systems assess the value of that kind of therapy? Or a lot of the, the systems look at benefit of a, of a therapy in, in shorter increments, in one year, two years, five years, or on application. So what happens if you've got therapy you apply once or, and then has that impact in the long term, or on several, you know, on a few occasions that has that long term benefit? I think that question requires both industry, HDA bodies, patients, and the community as a whole to reflect on how we think about healthcare in a longer perspective, and that then ties to the final piece about how do we pay for these therapies as well? How do we pay for a therapy that you apply once but has an impact all the way through? Some some HTA methodologies, you know. If we look at diminishing uh, impact, then yeah, it's, it might not value those therapies appropriately. So I think there's a lot. There's a lot of questions. I think it's an incredibly interesting time to be looking at these questions. So in this respect, I know that in 2021, UCOP came out with a white paper talking about the different payment models and mechan- mechanisms that could be at play at this level. What was the motivation behind it? Was this the motivation? Were your members really uncertain about the way forward? Was that the motivation for the report? Or what were your key, key conclusions? Um, I think when it comes to our position paper on innovative payment models, it indeed stems in large part from the fact that we, we're seeing a number of ATMPs being uh, launched in the European market. The, the number changes almost on a daily basis, but I think we're up mm-hmm. to 20 ATMPs that have been launched since um, since we into the 2000s and each of them brings their own challenge while i don't think there's a, a one-size-fits-all solution tweaks to the current system might be needed so that uh, our payment model is appropriate for some of these therapies and reflects the unique nature of these therapies so that that really was driving forces you know if we look at some of these questions that our companies our members are getting from hda bodies and payers as to how to how to pay for these therapies, we want to help drive that thinking, help be a be a voice to kind of look for solutions. Once again, you know, it's it's not a not an easy answer, and unfortunately, we don't have a have a silver bullet or a, a quick fix all. Um, but it, it all comes down to there is no one solution. Just because you know, ATMPs are diverse in their technologies, they're diverse in the conditions they address, and diverse in the infrastructure and kind of backgrounds context they need to be appropriately applied. 
So what we try to do is look at, at some of the models that, that might help facilitate that. I mean, I'm going to stress that there is no one way forward, but there's different models we can look at. And based on the therapy and based on the national government's needs, we can look at which model might be the most appropriate and, again, and tweak it where needed. I think one of the key things that we looked at are solutions that look at the real impact of a therapy on patients as well. Uh, one option is looking at things like outcomes-based payment models or risk-sharing agreements, where therapies is reimbursed based on predefined endpoints, predefined improvements in patients, patient life, and patient quality of life. Um, and that's then what, um, what a reimbursement is based on. So we're no longer paying for the, the innovative medicine itself, but paying for the patient outcomes, paying for the really tangible benefits that, that some of these therapies can bring. And to be able to implement these models, there's there's a lot that we still need to, to get in place. I think the first thing to do is make sure that we're, we're all talking about the same thing, make sure that we bring all the stakeholders that we need to in the room. It's not just making sure that we've got the payer and the, and the industry in the room. We need to make sure that the, the patient is represented as well, the HTA body is represented as well, um, and make sure we come up with a solution that, that works for everyone and respects the, the needs of, of the different stakeholders. And I'm, I'm trying, to, <laughs> trying to keep it short and summarize that as much as possible. That's all right. Um, that, that, but, that's perfectly okay. It's perfectly okay. Affordability is a key term in this conversation that that I've heard consistently over the years, especially with, to do with ATMPs. You've got price tags of some of these gene therapies, 1 million, 3 million, etc. Is that something that your report addresses or looks to address in a way? Would you want to have that conversation with the stakeholders? to understand how your payment models or any model, for example, that is being considered, takes that into account and addresses that effectively? Do you think that's even possible? I think that's that's a great question. I think fundamentally, the way we look at how we price ATMPs is based in large part on, on the value that therapy brings to the patient, their families, their carers, and the community at large. A number of these therapies are incredibly transformative but they do indeed, there are important conversations to have. And part of it is looking at how do we build models that you know, support access while continuing to drive innovation and, uh, and progress in allowing companies to continue to invest in these therapies. And innovative payment models, often based on risk sharing, are one way of doing that and spreading out some of the costs so that they're not upfront, but maybe spread out over, over a period of time. There's still challenges to that, making sure that annuity payments work. But indeed, I think looking at, at new payment models to make sure that's uh, patients get access to them is is one way of doing that and the report does look at at what some of those solutions might be i think ultimately it is a conversation that needs to involve a number of different stakeholders it's something that we need to look at together do you think uh, manufacturers understand the affordability angle obviously they do want to be paid for the drugs that they are looking to sell but then there's there's so much uh you saw in the case of zolgen's mother trying out seven different models payment in the US as well as in Europe. Are your members having a conversation now with regulators? Are they getting some headway into what their objectives or what their barriers are, barriers to entry are in this space? So I think if we look at the rollout of, of ATMPs over the last few years, I think we've seen more and more this this desire and something that, that we ask for quite a lot as well, making sure that there are those early engagement opportunities with the different stakeholders. So we can start talking about this. I think increasingly we've also seen appetites to look for 
solutions to, to make sure these therapies are available um, that continue to reflect the value that they bring. So I think that's, that is an important you know, piece to bear in mind. These have incredible value that we shouldn't be, be just putting aside. But again, like I said, I think it's multi-directional conversation that needs to be had that looks at kind of the different needs in, in the community. And again, it's, it's not, prices aren't only set by, uh, by companies. These are long, complex negotiations that reflects a whole host of, of factors. But yeah, going, maybe going back a bit more to the crux of your question, I think we are seeing, seeing a willingness to look at solutions. I think more and more we've seen if you pay for performance schemes rolled out over the last few years. I think we saw examples recently, admittedly, Spain and Germany. This isn't a, it's not a conversation that's going to be solved quickly, but I think we are seeing kind of a, an appetite from different stakeholders to try and solve that. And I think one of the things that we want to do as, as you cope and with that paper at one of those steps is put forward a solution that we think would work. That's kind of that balance sustainability with um, allowing industry to reinvest, looking at, at what we think reflects the value of those therapies and ultimately trying to make sure that indeed that these therapies come make their way to patients. Because I think that's ultimately what we're all trying to do here is, is, you know, no one develops a therapy just for no reason. Ultimately, we're all trying to make sure that it addresses a need. Yeah. And I'm sure manufacturers are also uh, thinking about the fact that there's only a, a very small set of population for this curative therapy. What happens if that population is cured and where do they go from here? So that's also another conversation they're probably thinking about. All right, uh, let's move forward. Now, the EU's revision of the blood tissue and cell legislation uh, is supposedly planned to be adopted in the second quarter of 2022. The revision itself comes after a lot of discussion among different stakeholders, uh, evaluating the main legislation which came out in 2019, I believe, and Give us uh, your impression of this BTC regulation. Give us some context. Do you think this revision will help to bring up standards? It's an interesting conversation, interesting question as well. The BTC legislation brings together several different pieces of legislation. I think the first one was the blood directive that came out over 20 years ago, and this is the first time that's being reviewed. And you know, we're talking about ATMPs here. I think if, if we just look at ATMPs, the amount of technological advancement that's taken place during the course of the period that that legislation has been around, it's, it's astonishing. It's appropriate that the commission is looking at that legislation again. When it comes to, I think, actually the, the impact of the revised legislative framework, or we're expecting something around June, if not by the end of the summer um, at the latest. I think we've, we've heard quite a lot of different messages from the commission that, that have given an indication as to the direction, their direction of travel. The reason this piece of legislation is important is because of how it interacts with the broader legislative environment. So the BTC legislation talks really about the collection and transfer of things like blood and cells, which are, are important precursors to particularly cell therapies, but also gene therapies. We, we've seen their impact when it came to CAR-Ts. And I think that there, what, what it highlighted is the importance of of clarity, where does the BTC legislation start and where does the ATMP or the general pharmaceutical legislation take over? And I think that's one thing that, that we're keen to see clarified and make, make sure that there isn't any blurring of lines in that space. One of the things that we have understood is that we're not expecting very significant changes to, um, to classification or definition when it comes to the commission's proposal. We'll, we'll see if I'm right in a, in a few weeks' time. I think that's really the context of the BTC legislation is it, it helps to certain boundaries and classifications as to as the precursors. But I think it's a broader conversation that's going to be influenced by what comes out of the BTC legislation 
again, it's equally, if not, if not more important, and that is how the general pharmaceutical legislation is going to be revised. Um, the other, I think, one of the key packages that the commission is looking at at the moment, which outlines how medicine is authorized in the European Union, what the regulatory approval looks like, and, and how medicines make it to market. So while the BTC legislation looks at kind of that initial part of the process, it really then feeds into kind of the, the broader conversation. And I think that would be very interesting to explore as well. Am I right in understanding that the BTC at the moment, the way it looks at it, is, is just looking at the quality um, of the products, uh, whether they're up to standard and the safety of those products as well. There are still quite a few provisions on the technical based provisions that are still up in the air. This still needs to be ironed out. Do you think that the, the latest revision or the latest adoption will plug that gap? I think I think um, the BTC legislation can help provide some clarity when it comes to, to a lot of that precursor ingredients. So the collection and transport of blood and tissues and cells. So I think it has an important role to, to play there. But I think the again, just uh, not yeah. the the bigger question is when it comes to the actual manufacturing of the therapies themselves, which then gets covered by different pieces of legislation. So I think there's, I think for me, that probably where, where there'll be a lot more discussion around quality when it comes to the finished products, obviously um, making sure that, that all blood, blood tissue and cells point of collection or live up to the right standards is, is incredibly important. Indeed, that's what the BTC legislation will do. And it'll actually probably be looking to expand its scope into other, other tissues as well. So that, that definitely is important as well. So what do you expect from uh, the GPL? What are the big changes you expect? Would that be this year or, or the next few years? So I think when it comes to the general pharmaceutical legislation, the GPL, what we're looking at is an update, really, or so that's what we're hoping for, an update to the way that legislation is assessed, uh, that medicines are assessed and reviewed. One of the things that the Commission said, and we, we've, been, we've really welcomed that, is they've called for a future-proofing of the legislation, making sure that new therapies like ATMPs will continue to be properly assessed and make sure there's an appropriate pathway for those kind of therapies. And we're really at, not at the beginning, but you know, not, not too far down this journey yet when it comes to review. The commission is hopefully coming out with a proposal by the end of this year, if not in Q1 next year. That means it won't go into play for at least another year or two after that as well as, as it goes through the co-legislative procedure. And that's going to be, I think, a uh, a long conversation, quite an important conversation to have as well, because it touched on so many key things. I think when it comes to, to ATMPs and kind of the therapies we're talking about today, one of the or two of the key areas where the general pharmaceutical legislation will be incredibly important is looking at, at that pathway that's available for them. So that is looking at what kind of clinical evidence can we accept? Can we ensure that um, the EMA accepts alternative um, evidence generation methods? And again, kind of going back to what we we're talking about at the top uh, of, the, of the conversation, make sure that therapies have smaller patient, uh, patient populations. They can use things like real-world evidence. They can turn to natural history. They can turn to single-arm trials to make sure that those kind of uh, evidence uh, bases are accepted and used when assessing therapies. So I think that's one piece of the conversation. The second is making sure that the EMA remains as flexible as it has. I think the EMA is unique in its in its construction just you know by necessity um bringing together the competent authorities of 27 member states plus the european economic area so it's it's unique in that sense but it's also through that combination also been able to make sure that it's sufficiently flexible that frameworks and we hope that stays in place as well and whatever therapy comes after as well is making sure that we can adjust to those changes and so that's why i see as one of the key things is making sure that 
the regulatory framework allows for these kind of innovative evidence generation pathways. I think secondly, one of the key things we'd like to see is how can we accelerate those review processes? How can we make sure that Europe can shorten the time between um, application and marketing authorization at the moment compared to a number of other world regions, Europe is one of the slowest. So we're seeing if we can accelerate that will be, will be I think, an important development. Right. Now, uh, future of APMPs, I think in a previous uh, answer, you mentioned that every, uh, every time you look at the numbers of ATMPs, just seems to be growing. What do you think is the future like uh, for European manufacturers uh, and patients as well? Do you expect uh, approval rates to go up? How is it in comparison to other bigger economies like uh, US? Is Britain even part of the conversation? Yeah, what do you think? I think that that's an incredibly interesting question. I think at the moment, Europe's been an important first launch market for a number of therapies. And the conversation that we've had today highlight a number of points where, based on the direction of travel, that will impact how that looks over the next few years. If we look at the clinical trial environment, I believe almost 80% of ATMP clinical trials are taking place in, in the US or China. There was a 2002 biotech strategy from the European Commission that said, oh, we're at an inflection point right now. We can either look to be a leader or we can follow. I think when it comes to biotechnology, Europe's you know, done all right. We need to make sure that we stay competitive. And I think we had that inflection point in 2002. And I think we're, we're at that point again, where it's not just about kind of make sure that we can develop, launch and commercialize therapies here, but also kind of make sure that, that if, we don't, if we aren't able to do those things, they won't make them to patients either. So I think we're, we're at a point where policy, um, we touched on, on two pieces of legislation that are currently being discussed. There's also the orphan medicinal product legislation being reopened. There is the EU HTA regulation, which is being implemented at the moment. I think all of these things are going to set the direction for, for ATMPs in Europe for the coming years, if not the coming decades. Right. So... Um... From all that conversation that we've got had today, it looks like ATMP manufacturers, at least in Europe, have a solid um, future to look forward to, an exciting future to look forward to. And hopefully there's uh, enough investment to keep this uh, industry space growing at a double-digit rate, at least, over the next few years. Victor, is UCO uh, doing a few events for members on uh, ATMPs? Is, is there any sort of future activities that UCOP uh, is going to be involved in, not only for your members, but also uh, involving any other trade associations or industry groups? Well, maybe just to get the, the dry, boring things out of the way, hopefully in the coming weeks or months, we'll actually be coming out with the, the new position paper on um, real-world evidence in ATMPs and looking along with the full product lifecycle, building on a few of the things that you and I spoke about today. I think from a more interesting perspective, as these these different legislative initiatives come out, we'll be launching a series of podcasts that will, that will look into a number of these things, including cross-border healthcare directive, where I think there's a lot that we can do to, to support access from that perspective. And, and finally, as I said, we, we do work a lot with, with partnerships. Our OD expert group that we're a member of is developing a number of, uh, of policy acts that, that will try to help address that and move that, that conversation forward. And the Transform Alliance, which you is also a member of, is, is exploring both the themes of access and, and the regulatory framework when it comes to ATMPs. Earlier this year, we launched an initial set of policy asks on how we might be able to improve access from a cross-stakeholder perspective. Um, we'll be addressing the regulatory issues during the course of the summer. 
And then at the end of this year in October, uh, we hope to launch a charter that brings all these assets together. It's going to be an interesting piece as it brings together the perspectives of industry, clinicians, and patients. So it's really a kind of a cross-cutting initiative to try and bring ATMPs to patients, to make sure that, that it works for all stakeholders involved. Excellent. Hopefully we'll be invited to some of them and get to read your white paper as well. Thank you, Victor. That's it for this month. For more partners for access insight and analysis, please go to our website www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening.